Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics podcast. We host real conversations with real experts from around the world. Away from the filtered bubble of social media, our aim is to educate listeners and explore any topic in the cosmetic and wellness space. We also get a unique insight into the business minds of the entrepreneurs and pioneers who have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general information about procedures and products. You should seek professional medical advice and assessment before considering any treatment. Our guest today is Associate Professor Greg Goodman. Professor Goodman has been a practicing dermatologist for more than 20 years. His areas of specialty include skin cancers, Mohs micrographic surgery, lasers in dermatology, cosmetic dermatology, and the treatment of acne and post-acne scarring. He is a key opinion leader for several of the leading pharmaceutical companies and is a global authority on injectable complications. He holds the position of Chief of Surgery at the Skin Health Institute and has an academic teaching position as adjunct associate professor with Monash University. In this episode with Professor Goodman, we took a deep dive into complication management, the history and progression of dermal fillers in Australia, and his thoughts on training for cosmetic injectors. Are you still doing any work at the moment, Greg, for skin cancers and stuff like that? Yeah, I did Mohs today. I did five cases of Mohs and uh, I've got some trial patients that I had to do and I've had non-stop Zoom all afternoon. So it's uh, you are seventh Zoom conference, uh, at telehealth, but you're my seventh Zoom conference. But you've afternoon. saved your best content for us. Yeah, <laughs> I, thought, I thought we were special. There you go, seventh for the day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, we're, all, we're always special, but special can be a couple of different meanings, can't it? Really? <laughs> I remember the first time I saw you present was at Luna Park for Galderma. You were giving oh, a talk. Hilarious. That was many years ago. It was I think before they had even released. Um, God, it wasn't Galderma. That was QMed back then. I think it was. Yeah, I think it was it, when it they was were bringing in, out sub Q. I think. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, all right. That was a long time ago. Yeah, I was like, wow, this guy's a good speaker. <laughs> Why did they do a Luna Park? That's a unusual. Well, it wasn't in Melbourne Luna Park. It was in Sydney Luna Park. It was yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, just across the water. They had a convention uh, thing there. It was a fantastic view. They had a convention room there. Yeah, um, you look back over Sydney and the Harbour Bridge. It's really very nice. Yeah, it was very a good nice. spot. I think it was you and uh, Dr. Michael Zachariah. I think from memory, we're presenting. Okay. Um, could be. I have. I have. Done a couple of talks here and there, so <laughs> <laughs> just one or two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have given I have given zero thought to this guy. So no, no, okay. no, that, I was just about to say, like that. That's good. The less planning we do, the better. And no. I'm just going to put you on the now. There's nothing to put you on the spot, but everything I'm going to ask you, you know, like the back of your hand because you, you talk about this all the time. Yeah, I thought it'd be good to to ground um, the people who maybe. Unbelievable, you haven't come across you because obviously we've got people listening all over the world. We've got about 45 countries now where people listen regularly. So can you just sort of introduce yourself, Greg, and give us your background as to how you got into the injectables arena because you're one of the pioneers of Australia. Uh, that means I'm old enough probably. Um, yeah, don't tell um, your age. Just, <laughs> just, just say it very loosely. <laughs> well, I'm old enough to remember um, uh, Zyplast and Zyderm and... Um, uh, autologen and all sorts of uh, fillers that probably nobody remembers. But um, no, I I, um, I got into cosmetic dermatology because I heard a lecture once um, by a guy called John Yarbrough in my last year of dermatology. I was kind of thinking to myself, do I really want to go hear this guy? He was in Australia. He was giving a talk at a place called Clooney's Ross House, which is um, where um, we used to hire a little hall in Carlton. And... Uh, 
it was really close to my final exams and as you probably know from seeing exams, the last thing you really want to feel like is wasting your night going to hear somebody talk about not much. But John Yarber was a world expert in dermabrasion and dermabrasion mm. uh, was new. At, no, it wasn't new. It was, it was been around since, since the turn of the last century. But, but, it, but it was the way he did it was very different. And he was doing it for cosmetic reasons, not just um, the traditional acne scarring ones. He was doing it for wrinkles and doing it for, for anti-aging and various other things. So I did eventually go along to see him and he was a totally inspiring speaker, so much so that my th- my actually I'll go back a step, I'm a micrographic surgeon as well. And for micrographic surgery, I was going to do a fellowship in, in the States in Madison, Wisconsin in uh, mm-hmm. 1985, but that fell through because I was too poor and I, there was not a <laughs> job. Um, so instead I went over to the States and just did a few preceptorships here and there and one of them was John Yarbrough. So I actually went there and I learned how to do dermabrasion. I went to George Farber, learned how to do chemical peeling with phenol back then, I uh, learned how to do hair transplants from Bill Coleman and various others. Oh. I learned how to do all sorts of weird and wonderful things from all sorts of weird and wonderful people. Liposuction, <laughs> I brought back in 985. I did the dry form of liposuction. We used to park people in hospital, no anaesthetic whatsoever. Wow. Now and do uh, liposuction on uh, these prime suspecting people. Took him days and days to recover. The, the major problem you had to make sure of is they didn't get pulled in the emboli. Yeah. So, so they'll kind of like this. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I go back a long way. But my bio has always been um, a, as an interest in cosmetic dermatology, where it interacts and intersects with medical dermatology and surgical dermatology. So I did become a Mohs surgeon. It took a few years later. I did it in Australia um, and uh, in Sydney and in uh, Queensland. And, uh, but it took me a few years to get around to that. But in the meantime, I did start cosmetic dermatology. And the first um, uh, laser that I bought um, was uh, uh, what's called a, it was KTP laser. It's exactly the same <laughs> wavelength as we currently use. The 532, mm-hmm. 1064 is only a 532. Back in 1991, that cost me a quarter of a million US dollars. Wow. And to, to stop it and start it, you had to put your foot on the pedal. That was a pulse. And you put your foot off the pedal. That was the end of the pulse. It was, it was just a very, very strange machine. So I've always had this interest. So I'm a dermatologist. I've been a dermatologist since 1984. I've been interested in cosmetic dermatology the whole of my working life. Uh, I currently um, am um, part-time academic, I suppose, and part-time uh, um uh, surgical and part-time, medical and part-time cosmetic dermatologist. I hold positions at Monash University as an adjunct associate professor and at the University College of London also as an adjunct associate professor. And uh, as Jake will know, uh, we have a private training organisation called FaceCoach, so a little bit plug, and I have a, um, I've always had an interest in medical education software and I own a business called Script that delineates uh, people's best skincare across multiple ranges by software analysis. So there's, there's, uh, I've got a lot of uh, things I'm interested in, um, but uh, my major interest has always been that intersection between cosmetic and the rest of dermatology. Gosh, it doesn't sound like you've got time for much else in your life, other. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, on that note, I've only got three more minutes I can talk to you guys. I'm going. To- <laughs> oh God! <laughs> Very good. Tell us about occlusions. Go. <laughs> <laughs> so part of part of the, the being a part of being a dermatologist is it opens up really weird uh, subspecialty interests. Like through my 
uh, my career, I have had interests in other things besides cosmetic and surgical dermatology. I've, I've, I started a nail clinic, as in fingernails and toenails, uh, at the Royal Melbourne Hospital and started a skin and cancer foundation as well. I've been a, an expert when, uh, in uh, phototherapy back in the 80s with narrowband UVB and various other things. So it does allow you this ability to switch across and acne scarring was, was what I did my PhD in, my, my doctorate in, my MD. Um, but, uh, but, and I'm still totally devoted to acne scarring. I think it's a fabulous part of medicine. And the, the, the beauty of, of medicine generally is it does allow you to subspecialise so quickly and so easily. You know, I, back in the 90s, I looked at, I, I was cold hard-hearted, and I said, what field can you make your own? And I just had to look around the literature and find that nothing had been written in acne scarring since the 50s. Wow. L. Clinton was the last person to really write something intelligent about acne scarring, and he was doing it during his research time when he was doing his doctorate. In the 50s, nothing much has been written ever since the 50s to the 90s, except for a little bit on dermabrasion by John Yarbrough, you know, kind of isolated things here and there. But So I decided that was a really good field to get into. So that's what I eventually did my doctorate in. Um, but the same with complications. You talk about complications, you look around, you say there are all different ways of doing fillers, all different ways of doing botulinum toxin, and you say to yourself, well, yeah, I could say, well, this is the Goodman method of doing this, and I, I know that there are some people that have done that to greater plum, and there's a Brazilian in particular who's <laughs> done it to greater plum. Um, but yeah, yeah, it is it is a method, and it, it's it's an opinion almost. So, so I wanted something that was a little bit more grunty, and so I looked at when it was years ago, it was probably ten years ago, Narendra and John Rogers. Uh, started trying to start up the Elegant Academy um, back in those days. And uh, they sent me a whole lot of um, stuff that they had, uh, which preceded the, the AMI they have now. Um, and uh, they, they, the, the, the one on complications was terrible. Yeah. And so I rewrote that thing on complications. And that's what started me actually being interested in complications because I realised just how little there was educationally out there in, in this area. It's grown hugely since then, and I don't have that field to my own um, that, at all. Um, but it has been a, a fascinating journey just to see how far you can push complications. So if we think back sort of, um, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we were just sort of willy-nilly throwing, you know, fillers into, you know, nasolabial folds and, and so on. These whole concept of complications, which is almost completely unknown other than like something aesthetically not looking great or bruising and swelling, and now we've got things, and I know, you know, um, you can, we're going to talk about occlusions a bit later in the podcast, but when did we start to really get a handle on there were some serious things that could, could go wrong with these fillers? Like when did the sort of penny drop and we started to get an idea that, hey, we're dealing with some pretty serious stuff here. We need to be really careful and, uh, you know, take heed of the, the warnings and, and start looking at this a little bit more deeply. I think our, our ability to cope with complications was slightly different possibly um, more laissez-faire in the old days. For example, when I did dermabrasions, it was a 5 to 7% hypertrophic scarring rate on the jawline. You accepted it. When you did full-face laser uh, skin resurfacing, it was at a 5 to 10% infection rate. You accepted it. It was just part of, part of doing a, a nasty procedure on people. When you did um, kind of uh, liposuction, there was a, a, an incidence of 
people ending up with all sorts of issues to their health and also to uh, uh, to their outcomes as far as cosmetically, and you accepted it. Um, I think our acceptance complications has, has gone down a little bit, which is a good thing. Mm. Um, but if you look back at the old collagen complications, particularly in the gabella, they used to talk about pustular reactions and they used to talk about um, uh, inflammation after the treatment. And that was, and I used to, they didn't understand it. And, you know, it wasn't their fault. This just wasn't enough understanding at the time. They were getting vascular occlusions back then. They just didn't see it. Mm. They thought it was the thickness of the zyplast or the thickness of the cosmoplast. And you're only really allowed to use uh, zyderm. And part of the, part of the thing that, that saved people back then is the superficial nature of the injection and the injection process itself. The fact that they were intradermal for a lot of their stuff and truly intradermal was was relatively safe. And the fact that they did things like ferning and fanning and moving the, the syringe was the linear threading, they didn't do boluses and they didn't do the sitting on one spot and they didn't do the aspiration stuff. There was none of that. And so you used to have retrograde and anti-grade injecting. And what saved them, I think, was some movement. Yeah, I think what we're going through now, and I, 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 I'm not many to disparage people that believe in certain principles of treatment, but we're going through a situation where we're putting much deeper, much bigger vessels. We're, we're dealing with volumetric expansion for the first time. We weren't dealing with volumetric expansion back in the uh, when Phyllis first came in. Uh, we're dealing with bolus creation. If you get a bolus intravascular, you're dealing with a problem. If you get a bolus extravascular, you may be dealing with nodules is a problem. So so it's a different paradigm than what we're doing at the moment. So I think that's where it's coming from. And just a sheer volume. You, you, you know, when I did, when I started, um, can I call it Botox in this podcast? Yes, of course you can. Yeah. We, were, we, were, we were strict to begin with, but we've decided, uh, well. Well, it was only yeah, we go. back then. So we only had <laughs> Botox in Australia in 1995, 1996 when I started it. And, um, and we used to use uh, 10 mil dilution for, for Botox in that stage. <laughs> 10. <laughs> We'd walk out with the eyes <laughs> yeah. all over their face. It looked like still a Klingon. Gave, yeah. <laughs> still gave a, a fine result. But in Melbourne, for a couple of years, I was the only person, I think, doing Botox. Like it was me or, or nobody. So I used to literally do like 30 injections of Botox on a, on a Wednesday afternoon and not any during the week, and then and then it went off the market. Ninety nine, <laughs> I suddenly lost a third of my practice. It was because um, they they re, they took it off the market to reformulate it. It was oh. protein heavy at that stage, so they withdrew it and made it protein lighter and put it back on the market. and And it was nine months without any Botox. It's just like it is. Did now. you notice any uh, sort of more complications with the older style Botox? Uh, well, no, not really. I mean, we didn't know what we were doing, um, so that was always <laughs> a complication. <laughs> I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I had very little instruction. I went to a couple of American Academy meetings and I remember Jim Fulton talking about it and Gene Carruthers talking about it. But realistically, I didn't really know much more than that. They put up a couple of um, uh, show. Uh, this is how I do it, so I went home and did it. Yeah, that was, that was what happened in those days. Um, it was the best and the worst of medicine, probably. Which um, one do one teach one? Yeah, that's exactly right. But I wrote it up very quickly. I wrote up my first article on Botox in 97. So it was actually, and I had a grading system and all sorts of things, and I thought I was pretty unique at that stage. But obviously, wasn't so unique thereafter. But it was, it, was a, it was a learning curve, but not a steep one. And you didn't do lower face stuff. You didn't have you heard of massivers. You didn't do those. You didn't do uh, lower face botulinum toxin. You did, you know, kind of literally the, 
the, the standard areas, the, 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 the small lines and the frown lines and the, uh, and the forward lines. Um, but it was pretty pretty simple stuff, really, and then, and you got used to it. And the diffusion of the 10 mils was extraordinary. I used to get fantastic results. It <laughs> 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 diffused down to their toes, I think, so everything was pretty uh, was pretty uh, hit. It was, it was interesting times. What um what did the collagen look like, Greg? I'm fascinated. What is it opaque? Is it um clear? What, what no, is it's it? Opaque. It's like milk. Um, it, it's a it's a beautiful product. I mean, there's no doubt, in my opinion, um, that for superficial work, there's never been a collagen like this. This is there has never been. So you know when Cosmoplast, Cosmoderm, Zyderm, Zyplast went off the market. Um, and justifiably so, it used to last about three minutes. It was it didn't didn't last very long. Um, but in scars, it would last. Like for example, if you used Zyderm two in, a, in an acne scar, it lasted a full year. It was no no problem at all. Right. Um, and uh, it was it was it was a it was it's a lovely it's a milky product. So you don't see it. There's no tindles and none, none of that. Mm. You can blanch to your heart's content on upper lip lines, like you can really flood the area. And and that and that goes white, and you think, oh my goodness, this is never going to settle, and it looks great within, you know, next day or so. Yeah. Uh, and you, there was nothing like for for treating upper lip lines. Now I laser them because I can't get HA to work reliably for, for my fine lines anymore. So yeah. So you know, I use everyone diluted, non diluted, all sorts of stuff, but mm-hmm. but I can't get the result I used to. So now I use Erbium laser for treating my upper lip lines pretty much uniformly. Um, but. Anyway, not not in COVID times, unfortunately, in Victoria. But I'll get back to it eventually. Why do you think we didn't persist with trying to work on a formulation that would allow collagen to last longer or give you that longevity? If it's such a great product, why did we sort of give it away and move to HAs? Surely that could have come up with a, a formula that would have given it the longevity. Yeah, look, when Cyplast and Zyderm gave way to Cosmoderm and Cosmoplast, it was a bit of a change because there wasn't the the incidence of allergy. But you have to remember that with Cyplast and Zyderm. Um, and in one, in two, there was a 3% allergy rate. Mm. Uh, you know, one in, one in 30 people had an allergy. You had to test, you had to test drive them twice. You had to put 0.1 mil into, into their, their forearm once and then wait a month and then do it over again. And that gave you a one in a thousand chance, which is acceptable. You know, we, we think, you know, HAs, you don't need a, uh, a, a test for, but the incidence rate of allergy is probably much the same as, as, after two tests of collagen, so there probably is an allergy rate of about one in a thousand. Um, so um, the answer is there were a few efforts. There's a Japanese collagen uh, for a mm. while that, that went through some trials. One of the big farmers who were doing one, Johnson & Johnson, I think, had a collagen, uh, a porcine collagen that went through a few testings for a while but then fell away, obviously, there were some issues. Um, it was, yeah, and then there was autologous collagen, which was, taking some skin from the back of your ear and sending it away to be um, grown. They used to grow fibroblasts and send it back to you. Uh, I can't remember what it was called. It's autologen, I think it was. And they used to send it back to you and they used to inject that. It cost $3,000 a mil uh, to the patient. Um, wow. <laughs> for, and so you mentioned how much it cost the patient. Um, so... <laughs> so it, was, uh, it never really took off in a big way. But there, it, it got launched twice, Autologen. got launched in a British, British company. It got launched twice before it died eventually. Yeah. And there are all sorts of other things like uh, Symmetra and uh, I can't remember the other ones, but they were, they were, um, uh, they were uh, um, cadavers, uh, cadaver oh, wow. that was used as well. 
Um, so there, there, there were a lot of attempts, but it just never quite made it. Gosh, I just saw Jake's eyes light up when we said $3,000 a mil. He's like, what? Why <laughs> <laughs> well, no, like, couldn't have been around back then? <laughs> I think I think we discussed that in one of our earlier podcasts with yeah. Richard from Mondale. That was what he yeah. was doing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's exactly what yeah. Greg, just to take you back to um, how you got into complications and then we'll sort of go in a bit more deeply. So how did you go from sort of, you know, deciding, okay, this is interesting to becoming a world sort of authority on the matter? Like, how did you formalize, you know, your education and probably reach out to other experts around the world? How did that start? Yeah, look, my memory is not great on exactly the, the route that I took. I did rewrite all those materials for, for that company. Mm-hmm. Um, and that took me on a journey of having to self-educate, and I looked at all the literature that there was, and I started writing a fair bit, and um, I started uh, obviously discussing it and lecturing it on a fair bit because uh, I, I felt at the time that that um, there just there just wasn't enough discussion about things that can go wrong. There's a lot of discussion about things that can go right. Yeah. I've always been a bit of a pessimist, so I get things go wrong. But I think that that uh, if you, what I tend to find, I'll go back one more step. A few, maybe thirty-five years ago, uh, I helped start up the Skin and Cancer Foundation, Skin Health Institute, mm-hmm. and the 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 um, concept behind that was that we wanted to tap somebody on the shoulder and say, "I think you would do really well starting a clinic in Vitiligo." hair, um, some sort of surgical thing, whatever. And we said to them, don't worry that you don't know anything about it because <laughs> once you have a basal level of understanding and you go on a journey to learn a lot about things, you will become a subspecialty expert. Yeah. And there are a lot of people at the foundation that are currently doing a world expert in this thing. I did nudge on the shoulder saying, I want you to do this and next week you'll start that. And this George Varagas, who was a, a mentor of mine in, at Royal Melbourne, um, uh, and I used to be a consultant at Royal Melbourne, uh, turned around to me one day and said, oh, we're starting a nail clinic next week at the Royal Melbourne. I said, that's fantastic, George. Who's taking that? And he said, you are. You, you are, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so to some extent, <laughs> some extent, if you bury yourself in an area for long enough and read as much as you can, and then start writing yourself and lecturing yourself, you can become an expert. And yeah. I can't remember the exact, you know, I just got asked by a number of companies to talk about complications, so I started talking about complications. Um, and I, I just think that that I have some theories on why things happen that are a little bit off the beaten track. And I, I just have, I love having debates with people about uh, theorising nodules, intravascular, um, aspiration, aspiration. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, that 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 I know I'm right. Just nobody else knows I'm right for some reason. So, <laughs> but but yeah, I love having debates with people. And so I was I was um, uh, on the Alpha Group in 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 that uh, uh, Elegan um, uh, symposium. People and, and you know they had people from around the world that they picked on and. Uh, I think I was. I think Stephen Liu might have been on it too. Uh, it was myself. Um, we might have been the only Australians, but but we were on this group, the international group, and they used to pluck us around the world uh, until 
Allegan decided to go global and international, which case we did, I just got stuck on this side of the world rather than being that. <laughs> but that did allow me to interact with people, the Steve Fagans of this world and the, the Michael Keynes and, the, you know, the, the, that were the Carruthers that, that were really up at the, the top end of this. And I used to, and Cohen the Bully was on there, uh, that I used to, to interact with them a lot and have a stimulating discussion and it stimulated my interest in it. Um, and, you know, since that time I've, I've, Developed a lot of materials and a lot of lectures and a lot of a lot of interest in case reports and um, uh, and I think it's a poorly worked out area and I think that that to some extent mirrors the acne scarring uh, thing that I was into so you know wherever I see a poorly worked out poorly um, I'll give you another example I was on an advisory board in um, uh, Windsor and in, in the UK I think maybe might have been last year might have been the year before. Um, and we were, to, it was January last year, I think, and we were bunked together in this god awful place called Windsor where the Queen lives. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> and we were meant to discuss and get a, a collegiate view of um, dermal nodules, of uh, filler nodules. There would have been uh, maybe 22 people there. There might have been 85 opinions about what was going on. It was yeah. just, it was just bizarrely. Uh, there was nobody that, that agreed to anything. And so where that happens, I can see an opportunity. And so that's where I get involved. When, when there's confusion, I love confusion. Um, and I think that, uh, that you know, I just want to bring sobriety to an area which is drunk as a skunk. <laughs> yeah. Um, speaking of um, confusion, and I guess we can talk about the marketplace in general. I mean, we've got, um, I don't want to talk about any particular clinics or brands um, specifically, but we're living in a world now where you, you know you can walk into a shopping center um, and get fillers and tox done. We've got, you know, every sort of six months, there seems to be another product, another filler coming out. What, what are your thoughts on that in terms of this, this rapid expansion into you know, something that's almost become commoditized um, in a lot of respects. And I'm just interested in what your general thoughts are and, you know, how this sort of relates to, you know, increase, increases in complications and so on. Um, oh, how honest do I want to be here? <laughs> no pressure. No one's going to hear this. It's just, it's just Jake and I. Just you and me. <laughs> Look, commoditization is, is um, good in areas where commoditization doesn't hurt anybody. Um, so if I'm going to be brutally frank, you put botulinum toxin in a gabella, who cares? I mean, look, it can be badly done, and I've got buckets of Mephisto patients come through every day of the week. Mm. Um, not at the moment, unfortunately, in Victoria, but, <laughs> but it will be. Um, the testimony that, that a simple procedure can be done badly. Um, but having said that, um, is it really detrimental to the patient's health well being? If they like that look, is it a problem? No, I don't think it is. So, yeah, upper facial botulinum toxin, I hate the look that people are getting. I hate that frozen sort of, I can't, I think I used to be able to move something, but I can't. And, I, you know, you see it on, on the news, you see it everywhere, but you also see it out of these, these, uh, these clinics because they, they, they're just taught to inject in a certain way and they inject in a certain way every single person. Every single person looks the same, acts the same. Doesn't, if they had asymmetry going in, they're definitely going to have asymmetry going out. I mean, there's, mm. there's no refinement of, of method. Um, so, but that's not everybody. And, you know, some of these guys really have an artistic eye and, and they can do a good job. But do I want to commoditize fillers? No. I think fillers are really 
a problematic procedure. Um, I think that uh, the companies want to see it commoditized to some degree because it's good sales. Um, but fillers have the potential to make people look stupid. They have the potential to make people look ugly and they have the potential to make people unsafe. Yeah. And therefore, they really need to be well taught and they can't be a, a thing where you just literally walk into every clinic and everybody gets exactly the same thing. So I don't, I don't like commoditization of fillers. I don't care about the number of uh, competitors there are. And, you know, if, if there's a lot of HAs in the market, all the better. I mean, it's, uh, it's not a terrible thing. One of the loopholes, Greg, around the world, and the UK is probably the best example, is that the fillers aren't prescribable medicines. They're, they're classified as a device. Well, the device is here too, but they're, they're classed as S4. So, you know, yeah, they've got it both ways to some degree. Um, but, but in the UK and in New Zealand, uh, across the ditch, um, yes, anybody can do them. Um, yeah, and, and that's the, cra- that's the crazy part. That's the loophole, isn't it? Yeah. Well, but it doesn't save – it certainly doesn't save the public completely because the uh, the, the um, medical practitioners aren't the, are the only ones doing it sort of thing. I'm not the only ones doing it or the nurse is not the only ones doing it. Yeah. Um, but in an unregulated society like that, you are going to have far more issues and they're mm. going to be severe issues. And, you know, the problem is that, as we know, the issues to do with fillers, albeit uncommon, are very, very problematic. Um, they're very severe. And I, and I don't think something like that, even if it's an incidence of less than 0.1% or whatever, one in a thousand, um, and I think that that's, would be where it is, even for the extravascular nodules and the bumps and the, and the bad reactions, and the, you know, that has to be taught properly. And it's yeah. not a matter of just sticking the filler in. People have got to know how to stick it in and how aseptically to f- stick it in and, and how to respect the patient's own anatomy and to understand what they're doing. Well, we've discussed this on the podcast many times, but that's our industry's fault as well because there isn't a formal qualification to recognize our skill in the first place. And so, you know, it's the Wild West of medicine where, like you said, anyone can pick up a syringe and have a go. Yes. So yes, no, I agree. I mean, yeah. You know, obviously, I've been working towards some sort of um, standard education process. I'm forgetting about uh, my private company, but but I, I think that the more educated processes we have, and the more uh, requirement we have that, that people reach a minimum standard, the better. Yeah. Um, without a minimum standard, obviously, you're going to get what you pay for. You're going to get, uh, you know, the one twenty nine ninety five any operation you want, Doctor Nick, sort of thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, Is that a Simpsons reference? I yeah, think it was. Simpsons reference. Oh, yes. um, but uh, you know, you, you you're going to get um, you're going to get problems. So, so yeah, my plea would be: I don't I don't care who injects. I don't care if the barber injects. If the barber's gone and done a PhD in fillers. Then sure, you know, let he or she inject. But but you know, you you just need to have the person properly educated and understanding and understanding aesthetics as well. It's not just understanding how to stick a needle into somebody. It's understanding what the final um, wish uh, list for the patient and for the practitioner is, and you know, where they want to end up. What are you trying to achieve? Are you trying to achieve some sort of degree of facial harmony, beauty, uh, youth, um, gender? Um, dimorphism, you know, what, what are you trying to, what are you trying to end up with? Um, yeah. And if you don't have that aesthetic 
uh, assessment in your head, uh, you know, then sometimes you can't teach it, but sometimes you can. And, you know, people have got to have an end game in play. They can't just say, I've got a nilla filler. I know that that can go into two cheeks, you know, and that's what I'm going to do. So, yeah. Yeah, it's that formulaic approach that sometimes makes it difficult for people to, um, I guess, appreciate the nuances and look at it from an artistic perspective. And Jake and I have had these conversations before in terms of, you know, medicine and, and nursing being, you know, a, a pursuit that's quite analytical, attracts the analytical brain. And then you're sort of all of a sudden you've got this emerging sort of sub area of medicine, which um, requires an artistic hand. And sometimes people that are initially attracted to that sort of, uh, idea of moving into sort of a medical field aren't blessed with that artistic eye it's almost like it's almost like you need that unicorn person you know you need to have that amazing artistic eye but also to have the, the medical know-how and and training to be able to perform it safely and it seems like it's rare you come across that co- that sort of combination of person well the last time i think was leonardo da vinci i think was yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah who taught him i think he was he self-taught <laughs> Yeah, but it, but it is true. It, you, you, I think you have to have the science. I mean, I've written articles, for example, on ovality of facial female shape, for example. And, you know, and, and I, I honestly believe that there that there is mathematics and beauty. Stephen Lewis' angle of beauty, the same sort of thing. It's that you know you can't be beautiful with a with a bad facial shape, or you can't be handsome with a bad facial shape. It's it's, it's one hundred and one. Yet most people are going to go internal because that's what people look in the mirror and they say, okay, they're going to go in here and here and here because that is what you see. That's what the selfie would show, etc. But they're not looking at the overall. The overall, the outside of the facial shape is so much more important, and it's so so safe compared to the internal parts. You know, this is where the the tiger, as Arthur Swift kept on saying this, whether I can't remember how he says it, but the tigers live or something. Um, but it is true. You know, this is where the danger areas are. Whereas this is a low hanging fruit and gives people, whether they're male or female, it tells you whether they're young or they're old. It tells you whether they're beautiful or handsome or they're not. And so it's all about the facial shape to start with, and that is absolutely critical, I think, before you start going anywhere else. So people should be taught in a very different, uh, very different method to what they are taught now. They're taught now just to look at an area and say, I need to fix the cheeks. I need to fix yeah. the I need to yeah. on those. So, you know, yeah. it, is, it is something that you need to actually start back and say, how do I assess the patient properly from the beginning? And that, that is taught now, but it wasn't taught five years ago at all, like zero. And that's why we filled every line we could see and we said, well done, thank you very much. Next. <laughs> I have a classic patient that I, I don't really want to show his pictures, but a classic patient, I was doing his acne scarring, and I was totally guilty of this. He had scars all the way down his, his cheeks in this area, and I put filler in each one of them, and I, I did a lovely job, and he was so excited, and I was so excited. You know, he he'd had, I think, two or three filler sessions. I'd done bulk filler. I'd done individual scar filler. I'd uh, done a whole lot of resurfacing and that sort of stuff, but basically... When I looked at his photos before, he was an alpha male-looking guy and I had overlized him completely and made him into a very nice-looking female, um, just literally smoothing out all, all the areas that were, that were not, not angular anymore because now no, I filled up his scarring beautifully. And he didn't see it and I didn't see it until I looked at his before and after. So you, you've got to look at the overall. You can't just look at uh, what you, you can't What's be blinded by, by what you're doing. What's that saying? You can't see the forest for the trees. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're all guilty of that at various times. 
Yes. Now, we're in danger of doing a complications podcast without talking about complications. So I'm going to steer us towards complication. <laughs> um, Jake, Jake, Jake's the sensible one. I like to just have a chat and Jake's like, no. Well, Greg, <laughs> it's, it's good. so hard it's good. to pin down. We've, it's good. I think we've sort of discussed this podcast loosely for about a year. So yeah. Well, that's good. No, I, I, because yeah, I'll just go off on tangents, so it's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can talk about complications all year. So you just keep throwing nasty things at me, and I'll, I'll uh, tell you what I think. And that is, as Jake will know, is at sometimes at odds with other people. So um, I'm happy to be controversial. It doesn't worry me in the slightest, I must say. Well, let's start with the non-controversial stuff. But actually, this stuff is part and parcel of it injecting. It's just swelling and bruising. Mm -hmm. I know it seems so obvious and, and we almost accept it as, you know, going to happen. But do you have any sort of clever tips up your sleeve to reduce any of these things? For example, do you use a little Accuvane to check for the, the vein mapping or uh, do you use lasers to reduce bruising if you do get a bruise? You know, some of these things are available to dermatologists yes. that may not be for your average injector. Yeah, look, um, I must admit, bruising and swelling, um, they're meant to be common. I don't think they are that common. I, I think if I'm in a highly vascular area, uh, I will resort to cannulas quite often and uh, and usually larger cannulas. Uh, don't be um, fooled by the fact that you think a cannula is not going to bruise if you're using a 27-gauge cannula. It goes through a vessel very nicely. Yes. Um, and and that will bring back to the next part when I, we talk about, presume, about aspiration. But you are in vessels and out of vessels all the time when you're in, in the face. Um, and I do think that in certain vascular areas, you, you may want to. I don't pre-cool. I don't really believe in that. Uh, I don't use adrenaline in my in my uh, preparation, which is another thing that has been used. But I tell you what, a couple of things I do do. Uh, one, if I'm using a cannula, I always use local anaesthetic with adrenaline at the entrance point. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that is for a couple of reasons. One, uh, I think you do almost do away with bruising. Um, but the other reason is you do vasoconstrict the vessels. And the one thing about cannulas is once you're in the plane that you want to get into, the final deposit of your plane, your cannula will stay in that plane. Right? Yes. And, and uh, it's been shown in, in Tatiana's, uh, Pavlicic's articles and Ben Longan's articles, uh, that once you're in a plane with a cannula, you kind of stay there. But it's getting to that plane that is your worrisome journey. Because if you're getting to that plane, you are going through vascular structures all the way into that plane. And if you cannulate, and again, if you look at Sabrina Fabi's paper on, on a 25-gauge cannula with a, with, a, uh, with a blood flow coming back into it, if you cannulate, and that's what cannulas are, they're cannulas, they cannulate vessels, um, then you are not going to necessarily know that. And you may very well inject filler into that, uh, into that um, cannula. Um, into that cannulated vessel, and you may do a lot of damage. In fact, a lot of the severe cases have been people under general anaesthetic, for example, where people are actually doing their nasolabial folds or whatever with a cannula or up their nose with a cannula, and they're actually uh, ending up blinding that patient without actually noticing it because the cannula has cannulated the vessel. So one trick you can do with the local anaesthetic is you can vasoconstrict that whole area and your cannula has got nothing really to get into. But presumably that would just be the dermal vessels where you're injecting. No, because no, uh, I think uh, if you look at what – no, I think because you're putting like anaesthetic in, I'm not putting it in 
um, necessarily completely intradermally, but it will find its way and vasoconstrict all the way down. So, so mm-hmm. I think that 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 is a nice method, um, and it just doesn't and it ends up doing away with bruising. Um, for needles, um, yeah, I move, I do all the t- typical things that I don't know if anybody's seen me inject needles but but I, I do a lot of wiggling and waggling and so the patients don't feel the actual procedure uh, i do the, the q and the bully flick onto the needle i do all that sort of stuff so i'm not really worrying about vessels so much as making the patient comfortable when i'm doing the injection but pressure is what you really need so when i'm finished with an area i'll I'll, I'll sit on it. I won't sit on it for long, but I'll have my thumb on there while I'm on to the next area. So always remember that the, that your best friend is immediately after the injection. Now, on, on, on to your question, Jake, about uh, lasers, yes, we, I, I use lasers a lot, uh, always 532, um, uh, low settings. You don't need high settings. And you run over the next day or even straight afterwards, it's been shown. Initially, you used to think it was the next day, but now you can, we know you can run over them. And yeah. it does take away the bruising within a day or two. It's really quite astounding. I must say that when um, uh, Peter Callan stuck needles in my face once upon a time and bruised living daylights out of me, and uh, no, he didn't bruise me with the filler. He, he, didn't, he didn't put the fillers in. He was dissolving my fillers. And uh, he dissolved my fillers with some harder on days. And uh, I was black and blue because it was the early days. Nobody really knew much about how to inject hyaluronidase back then. And um, so uh, the next day I used Fraxel 1550 on myself um, and that worked just as well too. So there are some, there are lots of, lots of tricks in the trade really. And don't forget the other things. Don't forget the arnicas. Don't forget the, uh, the other um, things like that too if you really want to. But always remember that it's not, bruise is not always a bruise. Um, so you must actually make sure that the patient's ringing you up the next day to say, oh, look, I bruise, it's more than I normally get. You, know, you don't just pat them on the head and say, no, don't worry about it. Send a photo in. If you're worried about the photo, you get the patient in because obviously a bruise can be intravascular just as easy as it can be a bruise. Yeah, absolutely. Now, going back to Arnica, that's kind of a, you know, something that we kind of throw around all the time. Do you believe in tablets, creams, both, uh, any other ways of doing it? All of the above. I like to spray underneath the tongue. I think that works pretty well. Um, okay. There's a spray arnica. Um, but, yeah, I think they all work. I it's like witchcraft, really, isn't it? It just doesn't quite make sense. But it does well, I was going to say, good. like, you're, you're a man of study and research. You must have looked into this. Well, where are you at with your uh, evidence base for arnica? I don't think there is such a thing as evidence base in arnica, but there are a few articles. There, there are a couple. But, but it's not, but it's not uh, you wouldn't do it except to make the patient feel that you're doing something for them. Lasers definitely work, but Arnica Arnica is less likely. I was going to ask you, with the um, laser, um, 532, so that's sort of targeting more pigmentation. So was there a reason why you use the 532 as as opposed to a 1064, which is more, so I guess, targeted at blood? Well, I must say that I have used 1064 a little bit, but it doesn't seem to do the job quite as much. I don't know. But maybe the vascular absorption is just not as high. Because remember, um, uh, and also 1064, there's no saying about 1064. It's uh, what you can't see can hurt you. And the thing about 1064, you'll, you'll, you'll hear the popping going when you try it for this, and it really that is quite off-putting. Yeah. 532 works because 532 is still preferentially absorbed by, by vasculature. I mean, it's, it is better absorbed by melanin than, say, 595 like the V-Bain, but it's, but it's still better. Its best friend is always um, blood vessels rather than uh, pigment. Mm. 
Would you use a laser on a filler bruise where, where you were obviously convinced it was a bruise and nothing else because of, would you be worried about the integrity of the filler that you've just put in? No, um, you have to kind of remember that fillers are um, autoclaved around about 127 to 129 degrees Celsius. You're not going to get that sort of temperature out of a laser. Mm-hmm. So you're probably not going to modify them at all. Um, the only the, the, There's another reason that sometimes you might use a 1064 in preference of 532, and you might have seen this occasionally. You get filler, you get bruises inside the filler, uh, mm. and that's really... Um, that's, that's really nasty because it can leave this sort of really strange colouring. And then 1064 is quite useful. But, but uh, otherwise, no, don't worry about the integrity of the filler. You're not going to get temperatures up that high. Okay, that's good to know because, you know, we standardly tell people, don't have laser for four weeks, but yeah, no, it hasn't really made sense to me. But and Miss just... Goldman wrote an article on this actually uh, using uh, um, you know, a laser on top of fillers and no issue. With, oh, I think it's IPL actually. Be on top of fillers and with no problems. I, I, I don't think you need to worry. I think you won't need to worry more about using botulinum toxin and energy-based devices, um, especially within the first four to six hours after implantation, because you really don't want to produce swelling with botulinum toxin because you're very likely to get into uh, muscles you don't want to get into. So <laughs> yeah. uh, that I mm. never, that I never uh, do at the same time. If I'm giving botulinum toxin fillers, I always do <clears throat> botulinum toxin. Last, not first. You don't want to push your hand. You botch on toxin. What were your thoughts on um, things like AccuView or using um, sonography to, I guess, deal or with complications? We had a um, Dr. Master, Dr. Mervyn Master on uh, earlier this year to discuss this very thing, and it seems to be, you know, from a layperson's perspective, it seems to make sense. But I'm, I'm curious to see what your thoughts are on on this sort of technology, and do you think it's something that will become, I guess, more of a norm in terms of how we how we conduct these treatments and avoid these sort of nasty complications. Not so much bruising, but I guess, you know, the big one, I'm talking about vascular occlusions and so on. Yeah, I don't think you'll avoid um, complications. I think it's a good way to treat complications under ultrasound guidance. Um, or if you've really got MRIs, you can do an MRI guidance, I suppose. But the, um, the issue is, um, I like Leonie Schelke came out to Australia um, last year and had a little session in Steph's rooms and she's a world expert in ultrasonography with um, with fillers and actually uh, has a clinic um, that is literally booked up for months and months where she literally does nothing else but she treat nodules and intravascular injections. And it was very impressive. You, you use far less hyaluron dose, for example, than you do if you're doing the high-dose Delorenzi technique, for, for example. Um, the question is... Um, can I instruct um, a normal um, nurse out in doing a, a session in a shopping centre uh, or a doctor in the middle of uh, Mudgee or something? Uh, can I instruct them to do ultrasound guidance uh, hyaluron days? And the answer is no. So to me, um, there's, there's, it's not it's not for it's not for the average clinic. Um, so. Mm. And it's not for the average clinician, and it's not going to become uh, a, a little handheld device. I mean, there are, as you've seen, phone devices now that you can use for ultrasound uh, treatments. But, but it, unless it becomes something that's like a stethoscope, which may have, have died now with COVID, but unless it's something like a stethoscope where it's an essential tool that everybody uses, um, it's not It's not what I want to teach. I actually want to teach people how to use hyaluronidase properly in a in in a uh, 
with, with their ability to actually handle that that uh, that treatment. So, yes, I think it's great in a specialist centre if you've been through everything else with uh, nodules and and or you've got a you know a nasty uh, intravascular and you want to make sure you're in the right spot. Great idea because um, we are having a little bit of uh, uh, an issue at the moment. Um, in do we believe that choke vessels, for import, uh, for example, important? Mark Ashton's work in in, uh, in the other, um, I think it's Russell Collette, but um, is their work uh, vital? No, is can you define the area of vasculature that's been irritated into closure um, uh, and deal with that very specifically under ultrasound guidance? And that's an ongoing area of research as to whether we can do that. So basically it may be that that whole area that blanches is not completely full of, of filler but it's irritated at uh, a certain point and has a, has made the whole, what's called angiosome, the whole area closed down yeah. and is, is the best way to actually target that little area of irritation or is it better to flood the whole area and get rid of it that way? Don't know. Shall we go about seven steps backwards and <laughs> find what an occlusion is for people? Because, <laughs> I mean, you know, they, I don't, we never quite know. A lot of our listeners are injectors and they'll know exactly what we're talking about. But there might be consumers or clinic owners that are sort of aware of the topic, but it's a bit of a mystery. So we're talking about fillers blocking blood vessels, basically. Yes. So there, there, are, there are three um, reasons that people think that, um, blood vessels can block. Uh, one is that you get a, a get true filler inside the vessel. Uh, two is that the vessel goes into spasm as a result of being irritated. And three, it gets blocked from being filler being outside the vessel and squashing onto the vessel. Um, De Lorenzi, in his article, uh, suggested that he believes that they're all um, intravascular, in other words, they're all uh, filler inside the blood vessel that causes this. Mm. That doesn't exclude spasm as a possible thing too. Hyaluronic acid is quite a noxious chemical, quite a nasty chemical inside a vessel. Vessels don't like having hyaluronic acid in them mm -hmm. and so they will be irritated and they can spasm. So um, those two are probably um, uh, part of the answer as to why things block, what an occlusion is. Um, occlusion is a blocked or, or a, 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 um, a vessel that won't work. The third one I don't I don't believe in. I don't believe in uh, in in uh, pressure causing an issue with uh, with vasculature. Um, I can tie off a blood vessel doing myosmographic surgery, uh, a cerebral temporal artery, an angular artery, and I know the nose isn't going to be compromised. So I don't really believe that that's uh, going to be an issue. So, but what about um I'm trying to think of an example. If you did sort of a, a dermal bolus on the chin to get a projection, whatever, mm -hmm. obviously you're not going to block um, a, a larger vessel, say the mental artery or the, the submental artery. That's a sort of, you know, 140 blood pressure. But what about the little angiosome on the skin that's being squished? Wouldn't that be a possibility at least? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, right. it would, I think it would recover. Um, um, to, to block a small vascular, to, to block from the outside um, is inconsequential because you have anastomosis still working. You've got, when you've got blood vessels in your face, 
almost all the vascular, almost all the blood vessels in the face on the left hand side are fed by the left hand side vessels and the right hand side vessels and the other way around. So you have yeah. really incredible anastomosis. So um, you have, if you have an area over over here that's blocked, then from the outside, you will have somebody else come to take it over. So therefore, when I'm doing surgery and I do take out the angular artery and there's a skin cancer there and I have to tie it off, mm. I never think I'm going to lose the nose or the upper lip or anything else. And that's the equivalent of putting pressure on the outside of that vessel. And if I'm tying off small vessels, also I don't believe. So basically what you have is you have this broad, rich anastomosis that look after surgery to look after the patient having surgery and the same thing would happen if you had pressure inside the vessel here inside mm. the thing there you would have blood other blood vessels coming from different directions that you feed that area but to that central bolus where let's say you've got a circle of oh, 0.3 mils of filler right in the middle where where the bolus is how would those other feeding arteries get to it if that is the center of the pressure oh because it's not in, there's not enough there's not enough pressure to keep a good vessel down. I mean, you, 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 as you said, you've got, you have got a fair bit of facial artery pressure. It may not be 140 millimetres of mercury, but, but you've got enough pressure to, to be able to keep those, these areas open. And there are lots of ways of getting blood vessels to the skin. You, you really can't do enough. And, you know, people talk about surgery on the nose and various other things that, that uh, can predispose to pressure phenomenon. I think it's just the vasculature, the blood vessels. If you're into a blood vessel on a yeah. surgically repaired nose, uh, then you've got problems because there aren't enough anastomoses to deal with them. Fair enough. By the way, I'm asking you questions that have been submitted. So I, I wanted to go to town on that one. Can someone ask me to, to ask you? <laughs> I know it sounds a bit simple, but if it was just a matter of um, putting pressure on your face, I mean, if you fell asleep on a hard surface on your face, wouldn't that be more pressure of the whole weight of your head pressing down on your vessel? than we sort of like a, trip, I think, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're not mentioning any names here, but yeah, I heard of someone that had this happen at some point. <laughs> That's how you get a pressure sore. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. yeah. But a pressure saw, for example, is a great example because you have to be sitting on that thing for ages. Yeah. Like you can't be, you can't have a, you won't get an acute pressure saw. You're not going to, no matter how much you, uh, you sat on your backside and how much weight you had on it, you're not going to get an acute pressure saw. Anyway, yeah. So. Great. Do you have any idea of the rate of occlusion? I know that's probably an impossible calculation, but do you have any idea of how common it is? I think it happens in, probably to some extent in every single injection you ever make. Okay. Uh, a clinically important uh, occlusion then, should I say? Well, I think you're probably talking about, we quote, for example, 100,000 injection uh, for blindness. Yes. I think you can probably say that one in a thousand or thereabouts would develop an occlusion. Uh, you know, I think one in a thousand syringes, not one in a thousand injections, but that sort of level. Yeah, so it's pretty common. I mean, and, and you probably see such a, a focus of it because you're a referral center. So you see this stuff every day and it's just normal to you. But there, there are many injectors who have said, oh, I, well, they claim they've never had one in their life. And I'm sure that's not true. But, you know, it doesn't happen too frequently to, to one injector, thank God. But, you know, you, you see a lot. So how many are you managing a week in your, in your clinic? Uh, well, in non-COVID times, I would have managed... Um, three to four a week, I think. Right. Yeah. Um, that's directly in my practice, uh, by phone, um, by um, by by uh, referral on computer. Another more than that, probably half a dozen a week. Um, yeah. 
but it is becoming a little less common. And I think there's a couple. It's not because they're they're occurring less commonly. I think people, more people are able to manage their own uh, ischemias. Um, but you always have to remember that when people say they haven't had one, they may not have recognised it. Oh, exactly, exactly. Yeah, you know, I had a patient who I think I presented um, on a large webinar. Um, it was meant to be in London, but it turned out being virtual. Um, uh, where she had been, she had been ten days before she got to our clinic, and she had virtually. And she had a nasolabofold injection. She had ischemia all the way up on both sides of her nose, up into a superorbital, and um, and into a cheek. And it was amazing that she didn't go blind. And that was um, just the luck of her anatomy to some degree. Um, and that had been diagnosed as a an infection, had been diagnosed as an allergy, had been diagnosed as all sorts of things by the treating clinic. So obviously you have to recognise what you're dealing with. So when people say to you they haven't had an intravascular injection, they may have just not noticed it. As Arthur Swift, again, quoting Arthur, he's a great educator, um, he says when he's uh, injecting uh, nasofold, his eyes are on the labella. He basically yeah. he knows that anything that is not happening at the needle point, any blood vessel reaction that's not happening at the needle point, may in fact be a, a problem going of a filler going into a vessel, but that goes a long way past where you're injecting and the effects on the skin are a long way away from past you're injecting. So you have to recognise it and that's a, big, that's a big if. Look, I remember it wasn't that long ago I, was, I had a doctor working for me um, who I injected her glabella. Uh, I did some ferning across her glabella frown, frown lines. That's when we used to do that. You're brave, man. Not very much anymore. And uh, suddenly I saw this this shooting uh, white thing kind of running up her, her forehead. No idea what it was. <laughs> Maybe in you know, a decade ago. No idea what it was. I said, oh, that was interesting. Well, that was. I just rubbed it and <laughs> massaged it. Nothing happened to it. Did, did I put that down as an intravascular injection? No, and I'm sure that happens a lot out there. Yeah. By the way, I'm not a smoker. I've had a bad cough for weeks. So I apologise if, if I yeah, sound like I'm hacking away. COVID is annoying, isn't it? Yeah, yeah that time <laughs> I've had a test. I'm negative. Um, so, n- not to sort of joking aside, you teach um, about occlusions on on face coach. You teach about using highlays. But can you just give those people out there who may have never come across, you know, the De Lorenzi protocol or even cracking open highlays and using it, just a really simple bullet point, just guide of how you do it and why you're doing it. Okay. Um, well, I do use the. Uh, certainly a modified De Lorenzi technique. And De Lorenzi, uh, Claudio is a Canadian um, and he is a uh, good thinker. Uh, he wrote up this in 217 that uh, that instead of injecting kind of willy-nilly a bit of hyaluron days here and there, that you use this God-given antidote, it's a fantastic material really, it's, we're very lucky to have it, um, that you use it in high dose in an area, in all the areas that seem to be affected, in the, in the in the tissues that that you've injected. So, for example, if you've injected a good example, nasolabofold, and you start getting this mottling sort of bruising all over the cheek, that means you've got into a vasculature area that 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 needs treatment with hyaluronidase. And his idea is that you actually flood that whole area with 500 units of hyaluronidase. And I like hyaluronidase made up purely in, in xylocaine, lignocaine, lidocaine, whatever yeah, it's in. Um, and um, I use uh, just literally two to three mils of lignocaine to dissolve up 1,500 units of hyaluron, hyaluronidase, hyalase in Australia. 
and uh, we 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 certainly just have that always on hand, and our, our um, tendency to use it is if we've got any idea whatsoever that there's been a Tabasco, we will use it because the best time to use it is when you've injected the hyaluronic acid. If you've injected the hyaluronic acid and you say, oh, sorry, I think we've got into a blood vessel, we have to dissolve that, then that's the best time you're going to save that patient's skin and deeper tissue. So you really want to make sure that you do that at the time. Um, and you have to have on your consent form that you're you, that you, this may happen, that you may get into a blood vessel, that it can cause um, uh, tissue loss, skin loss, can cause blindness, can cause strokes, and you and the patient has to sign to some to have to sign in our clinic anyway. The the, the willingness that, that they will let the practitioner use hyaluronic days to fix up a problem if that occurs. Yeah. Um, so that's that's and you have to have the hyaluronic days in your clinic. So we have said in our blindness article that all clinics should have five uh, vials of hyaluronic days, 1,500 units, so 7,500 units of hyaluronic days in their clinic uh, if they're going to be injecting hyaluronic acid. Uh, because we have been gifted this wonderful antidote, we should use it. So the way to inject it is either by needle or by cannula. Cannula is an interesting way of doing it um, because it doesn't tend to, to bruise the patient secondarily. The problem with using hyaluronic days sometimes is you do bruise the patient and then yeah. you don't know when to finish injecting the hyaluronic days. So hyaluronic days you're meant to finish when the what's called the capillary refill, how fast your your skin colour comes back to normal on on uh, pushing the skin and rebounding it, how fast that comes back to normal. When it's look, when it looks like the other side, that's the that's when you stop injecting hyaluronic days. So yeah. to the clinic, I would be using. 500 units per area to 750 units per area. So if they get ischemia in this area, um, the bruising in that area due to the uh, uh, intravascular injection or here, then they, every single area they have to inject, they should inject 500 units per area and repeat it. Repeat every three quarters of an hour to an hour. Um, just you know, repeat the whole process again until the blood vessels in the area that's been affected um, refill to the same look as the blood vessels on the outside of the face. Yeah, I've had two occlusions for open disclosure. One, I, in fact, both I noticed immediately. One was on a nose and, you know, immediate high lays and immediate resolution. That was pretty much the end of it. The other one you got involved in <laughs> and I called you, I called Mike, I called Stephen, I called everyone I could think of just because it was very tricky. And like you said, because the bruising starts with your high lays, how do you then check the capillary refill time? So it is difficult. And uh, I think the more people you can get involved, we've all got smartphones, we can take photos and videos, that that would be my piece of advice. Just get sensible people involved. I actually think it helps with your management of the anxiety of the patient that they know that several experts are all agreeing that this is going in the right direction. Yeah. Because the biggest problem, apart from obviously trying to save the skin, is actually managing the patient in clinic because they're very stressed. They think they're going to be there for 20 minutes to have their fillers and go home and suddenly they're there for nine hours and their husband's asking questions and they've got the big bruise and it's the social implications of, of the emergency management rather than saving the skin that almost seems to be the problem. 
Yeah. And you might even get patients that don't understand the gravity of the situation and get upset because you're now reversing the result, which they love. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, is, that is always a problem. And, and that is why you need it on the consent form. You need to almost have the discussion beforehand to some degree as well. You need to be able to say to them, remember that I told you that if I get into a blood vessel, I may have to get rid of it. I can always put it back in again. And you never charge them for that. It's not like you don't, don't be necessarily cutting off a leg and and then realise it's the wrong leg and sending him a bill. So, you know, <laughs> you want to be able to put the filler back in the following week and, and everybody's happy. But there is no excuse for thinking, oh, look, maybe I didn't see that. Maybe, yeah. maybe that's, maybe that's, maybe that's, I just, out of the corner of my eye, I saw that flash and it wasn't real. Because yeah. if you do that, then the next day and the next day, forget about how much hassle it was on the table convincing the patient it was a good idea to reverse the filler. Imagine all the subsequent days when they're starting to lose tissue and starting to have problems mm. with healing and, and their skin's breaking down. Can I give a, a, a tip to um, advanced injectors on this? Of course, sure. Yes. Yeah, the more the better. Okay. Um, don't, don't always think of the area of concern alone. I'll give you an example. Uh, a very experienced injector uh, sent me um, a very, I think I was in, Abu Dhabi, actually, no, in Dubai. And uh, he sent me this photo of this patient who was greatly distressed after having an injection down here and uh, in the marionette area and had developed um, quite an ischemic event of her skin but also of her tongue and yeah. her palate. Submental Yeah. And so always think that you don't, you're not – you think of your anatomy – so think of feeding vessels. So basically, if you have got a situation like that, think of where you can get into that you know where there is a vessel and you know that the facial artery crosses the, uh, the mandibular, the post, the post-gel sulcus um, in exactly the same spot. You can feel it, you can see it, you, can, you, can, you know where it is. Plonk a whole lot of hyaluronic days in and around that vessel. And this particular case, we did that. Oh, I didn't do it, but, he, but the person I was advising did it. And the tongue and the throat and the palate symptoms disappeared on the table. Like Amazing. Out. Yeah. That's awesome. So always remember that despite what had some articles suggested that you can't get it across vessels, I can tell you clinically you can get it across vessels. I've mm. done it on noses. I've done it in everything. If you know where a vessel lives, you know where this one lives, you know where this one lives, the lateral alley, you know where it also Ailey, you know, you know where you know where the dorsal nasal vessels are. You know where the the superorbital supertrochee. There are defined areas where you know you can get into vessels, and that's yeah. what saved our bacon with that blindness case we had with the superorbital, and that that will save you a lot of angst if you've got deeper tissue involvement in your face generally. Yeah, so using the anatomy to actually help you rather than you yeah. know avoid vessels, you're actually trying to find yeah. trying to use them to your advantage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, can I go into a bit more detail on highlays? Because I was having a great WhatsApp chat with Sarah Hart, Paul Nola, Wilma, and a whole bunch of other people today. Mm-hmm. And they want me to ask you, um, can highlays destroy permanently our own innate hyaluronic acid and leave craters or otherwise? Why should it? Well, th- exactly. The, the, we don't have any evidence for it, but the reason it came up, and I won't give any way any sort of personal information, but there's a patient who has sought out one of the trainers who has bounced around injectors claiming her face has been maimed as a result of dissolving. And it didn't seem legit. And I think there's a bit of a litigious angle to all of this, but is there any evidence of of that from what you've seen? Well, no, not that I've seen. Um, I, well, certainly not that I've seen. 
and it doesn't make sense. Um, no. I mean, a hyaluronidase is a temporary agent. Your hyaluronic acid in your skin lasts a day or so. In blood vessels, it lasts three to five minutes. Um, in, uh, you know, in, in, even in cartilage, it gets turned over in three weeks. You yeah. know, it, we are designed to turn over our hyaluronic acid all the time. And we know that hyaluronidase, as an agent, stimulates fibroblasts to produce hyaluronic acid. So it, as soon as you inject hyaluronidase, you actually turn on your fibroblasts to, to continue the effect of, of hyaluronic acid production. There's no, you won't find that older tissues regenerate their hyaluronic acid as fast as younger tissues do because their fibroblasts don't work as easily. Yeah. Um, but they'll still reproduce it. And, you know, in, in, youth, in youth we know that you have uh, epidermal hyaluronic acid. You don't tend to have that in older age. You, in Australia, we don't tend to have as much um, uh, upper dermal hyaluronic acid in uh, later life because of sun exposure. Um, mm. But even so, your fibroblasts will work. And if they're stimulated to turn on, as hyaluronidase innately does, it's a feedback mechanism, like every other feedback mechanism in your body. If you, if you, if you have a hyaluronidase naturally that is meant to destroy your hyaluronic acid, its other function is to make more hyaluronic acid. So it tells the fibroblast it's time to make more hyaluronic acid. I've just destroyed some. So yeah. it's, it's a natural thing. It's, um, and it's been shown in three or four studies that it has no effect anyway. But I've heard you say, and I, I don't want to get this wrong, but I think you postulated that we don't have a natural hyaluronidase around the socket of the eye. Yes. And that's why we see so many complications where fillers lasting five or even ten years sometimes. Yes. So why do you think we don't have it around the eye, but we do have it everywhere well, else? Well, it's not my postulation. It's actually, again, Claudio de Lorenzi's. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, he, his feeling is that the globe is the aqueous humour, the vitreous humour is basically hyaluronic acid. So the body doesn't want any native hyaluronidase getting around there too much. And right. so it doesn't actually have a lot of hyaluronidase around there. So you probably rely on other mechanisms to destroy your hyaluronic acid, such as reactive oxygen species and, you know, kind of single oxygen and superoxides and all that sort of stuff, all the nasty free radical things that are produced. And you have other ways of destroying your HA. But, but around that area, the reason we only have to inject a couple of times ever in, in tear troughs is because of that, yeah, just yeah. the result. Okay, hmm. fair enough. Yeah, well, I had my tear troughs done about 10 years ago and apparently they still look the same as they did, so there you go. They're still terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, well, I could get a point out at the time. I mean, um, my girlfriend says, you know, why do you, uh, your tear troughs still look so full? You must have had them done again. I'm like, no, just... I don't know. They just don't seem to disappear. Yeah, well, that, that's probably why. Yeah, and, and there's there's also probably a little bit of lymphatic stuff around too that's uh, keeping them up because hyaluronic acid is a good little sponge and there's not much lymphatic drainage out of your tear trough area anyway, so probably part hmm. of that as well. Um, all right, we're going to come on to the white elephant in the room, which is this thing called delay, delayed onset nodules. So this causes so much controversy because of brands and people's preferences and, you know, latest fillers, et cetera, et cetera. First of all, can you just explain what a delayed onset nodule or a DON is? Well, delayed onset nodule depends on your, um, on your definition of time, but it's anywhere between two and four weeks after the treatment session. Um, and it is a reasonably rare event, but probably not as rare as what we keep on saying it is. It, it, some, some fillers, it's probably, with, you know, Offerazzi has suggested up to 4%, but most people believe that, that uh, the highest filler rate is probably about 1%. 
uh, with certain fillers, but most fillers, uh, you're talking about a, a global on, global rate of about 004 to 0.08%, um, mm-hmm. so close to 1 in 1,000, 1 in 2,000. Um, they, they, I, I have a unifying theory, as Jake will probably know, but I have a unifying theory of this. Um, I do believe um, that all fillers, uh, when they're put in, uh, are never put in completely sterile. In other words, they always carry some pathogens in with them or some commensals in with them. Um, I have a feeling that not entirely necessary you've got these bugs in there, but we know that if I go into, I won't go and balk every stupid, but all, all fillers and all native hyaluronic acid is what's called high molecular weight hyaluronic acid. So that's um, usually about over 1 million kilodaltons. It's not 1,000 kilodaltons. It's not, it's not um, sorry, 1 million kilodaltons. It's not really a, um, uh, a, um, a total definition. But what happens to high molecular weight um, hyaluronic acid, you can imagine the outside of the filler, all these native enzymes like hyaluronidase or your active oxygen species, all these things are nibbling away at the edges of the filler. And that's how fillers dissolve. They dissolve by the, the edges of the filler becoming um, kind of eaten up by yeah. these enzymes like your normal hyaluronic acid is, and they get made into low molecular weight hyaluronic acid. Now, the problem is that people do not understand what low molecular weight hyaluronic acid is. They think that some of the companies, because they were stupid enough to say we've got a mixture of high molecular weight and low molecular weight hyaluronic acid, are really talking about what low molecular weight hyaluronic acids are, and they're talking about 250 kilodons. They're not talking about um, ones that are literally 10 to 20 kilodons that are the really low molecular weight hyaluronic acid that are what's called pro-inflammatory. Yeah. So what happens that why you get this nibbling up and what happens to your hyaluronic acid is that the outside of the filler um, is it's partially used by date. And so the, 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 the high molecular weight nibbles away, nibbles away, nibbles away, nibbles away, until it becomes these really small chains, really small uh, fragments that are then taken up by inflammatory cells and dissolved in a pot, pots of acid called lysosome. So, so it's a way of naturally degrading that filler. Now, the problem has, the problem is, that if you get infection um, at the outside of this filler or in, anywhere around this filler, you actually have a situation where you accelerate that conversion of high molecular weight hyaluronic acid into low molecular weight hyaluronic acid. Yep. It's well known. It's well known in lung fibrosis. It's well known in, in knees and joints and various other things, loosening prostheses, all sorts of things. It's not just dermatology. So you actually get the situation where all these all the high molecular weight that, you, that was nicely sitting there is suddenly being chomped a lot more because inflammation is occurring to the bacteria and that inflammation induces what's called reactive oxygen species, induces um, white blood cells, which are neutrophils, to start pouring out these substances in great multitudes mm. and causing inflammation to eat away at that hyaluronic acid very quickly. So you get this incredible cascade of an effect of hyaluronic acid being broken down rapidly into low molecular weight hyaluronic acid. High molecular weight hyaluronic acid is anti-inflammatory. Low molecular weight, the small ones, are very pro-inflammatory. So you get this situation, you've got a cascade of inflammation that is uncontrolled. And until you either get rid of the bacteria or the excess inflammation, 
you can't get control of the nodule. Yeah. And if the nodule stays for too long with this chronic inflammation, what happens to chronic inflammation anywhere in the body? It gets made into scar tissue or fibrosis, and that becomes a lot harder to handle. Long-term, late-onset nodules that have been going around in all the practitioners for ages are hard as rocks, yeah. and they can sometimes be very fibrotic, and they need treatment directed more towards scar tissue intralesional steroids, intralesional fluorouracil, rather than directed towards the actual hyaluronic acid itself because it may not be enough to dissolve it. So the way you have to get rid of the, the late-onset nodules is not a camp believing in steroids or a camp believing in colchicine and, and anti-inflammatories or a camp believing in, in intralesional um, hyaluronidase or a camp believing in antibiotics. They're all part of the equation. There's a bacteria probably there in some cases, there's excess inflammation in all cases. So what you have to do is let you control those two aspects. And there's a foreign body, there's hyaluronic acid. Yep. So you've got those three things you have to think about. So you can either dissolve the hyaluronidase, hyaluronic acid, if it's a relatively you know, easy thing to dissolve, it's not coldish. If you think it's an infection coming from sinuses or teeth or somewhere specific, you can give antibiotics specifically. Or if you think it's so inflammatory but you can't work out why, you might be going towards steroids or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. So I don't think it's I don't think it's an either or situation. I think it's it's all all the same thing happening. Yes. It's just literally how severe that inflammation is. And to be clear, because obviously you're a um, a key opinion leader for, for multiple companies, um, you're saying that this happens with all fillers in your experience, not yes. just a certain brand or a certain type. Yes. Yes, I, I know that, that there are some fillers that people think are overrepresented. Um, and look, to some extent, maybe some fillers are much easier to go from that high molecular weight status to low molecular weight status on inflammation. Mm. So if you have a filler that's it's much easier to dissolve back from, um, you know, some pillars are a 5,000 uh, uh, kilodaltons, so the, um, uh, some of the, uh, the older fillers, um, and some are much, much lower than that when they start. So if you've got a situation where it's much more easily nibbled, yeah. Um, either there's inflammation, then it's probably going to be overrepresented in uh, in the inflammation. So why do you think that there is this persistent rumour that one of the brands is more likely to cause delayed onset nodules? And you've been involved in, I mean, I listened to a talk where you, you spoke about the research directly at that product yes. or, or products and, and there was nothing in it. Um, well, there's not nothing in it, but I do think that, that well, to go back a step, all fillers we know at baseline are anti-inflammatory because they're all, H, all high HAs. Yeah. And that includes all fillers. doesn't matter which one you're looking at. But as I said, if you've got a filler that, is, that, can, take, um, that can take a lot of reactive oxygen species or a lot of hyaluronidase to destroy the outside of that filler, then that's going to be more stable and more difficult to get a, a nodule out of. If you've got one that actually, when it starts, it, it, it's much easier to get that cascade to develop, yeah. to get that, uh, that, that uh, bunch of, of low molecular weight HA uh, into, um, into you know, a, a broad, um, almost like a cascade of that happening, then that filler is going to be more likely to develop it. I think there are um, ones that are more likely than others, but unless you get a, a bug in there, to start with, um, or unless you do really big boluses, or unless you injected, we just had an pu article published about get, keeping out of uh, mimetic muscles, um, keeping out of, of, of the perioral and periorbital 
uh, muscles with with injecting. Um, I think if you if you obey all those rules, you can use any filler anywhere. Yeah, I think it's when you disobey the rules because every filler um, may not be created equal, but if you inject it um, in and obeying all the rules, don't get infection in there. Um, don't put it into movable muscles because it's not a really good idea. Um, metabolism's too high, and uh, you inject small aliquots. Then I think you're probably pretty safe with almost every injected material. Yeah, I mean, my stance is that. Sorry, David, I thought you were going to say something. That's all right. Uh, that uh, you know, it, it's the sterility that's causing most of these issues. Like you said, if you're putting uh, your needle through some makeup that you couldn't be bothered to take off, or you just forgot, or you know, you you didn't alcohol wipe and then you touched with your finger again, that's much more likely to cause an issue than any brand of filler. Totally. Yeah, I totally agree with or, that. Or a man re- refusing to shave his beard uh, prior oh, yeah, to treatment. Exactly. <laughs> you wouldn't have one of those, would you? No. Um, <laughs> um, but but it, it's, look, I think that's very true. You know, the COVID is making it a little bit more problematic uh, with uh, with all this because um, uh, we don't really enjoy people washing their faces down at the sink anymore like uh, we used to. Um, so we, we're starting to require patients to come into clinic, not that we're doing any injecting at the moment in stage four, but... But uh, we're starting to require patients to come in without any makeup on, or they have to wash down at home, mm. because I just don't think. <clears throat> well, I don't think we can be um, we can be injecting. We can't, we can't be sterilising the face um, in exactly the same way. We have to, we have to do the wiping down. We have to make sure that they're clean. Um, we can't we can't expect them to be washing their faces at the sinks anymore. That's just not uh, not uh, something that's COVID friendly. Mm. Jack, I know you want to ask about um, dealing with difficult patients, get referred for dissolving and so on, but I, I'm, I was wondering whether I could get some more information on the Face Coach actual company because I know that's something that you sort of uh, head up with, with Mike. Um, but what is it that you guys actually do? I know you treat complication management, but I, I mean, I've only heard bits and pieces. I know Jake does some work for you guys now and again, but what, what's the, the story behind it? And what are you guys, I guess, hoping to achieve by... Um, I guess doing what you're doing and, and sort of what are your sort of hopes for the future with it. I'm I'm finding a really fascinating sort of company that you guys have sort of set up. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, unbiasedly. Yeah. No, it's, it's a broad it's a broad offering, as, as Jake will know. And I don't really want to necessarily plug my own stuff. But no, please do because it's important. <laughs> uh, I've asked. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> well, in non-COVID times, it was it, it's it's a it's a bifunctional thing. So. Um, there is a, a static platform that has a bunch of videos and stuff of me injecting and, and commentating and showing people how to do things and a lot of lectures, a lot of PowerPoint presentations and that sort of thing. And then there's a Face Coach Live, which is what Jake's partly involved in, and we go ahead and actually uh, demonstrate to practitioners how best to treat certain areas. Sometimes there's a global event like feminising or masculinising a patient uh, where we treat virtually the whole face. Um, sometimes it's um, it's laser safety. Sometimes it's um, uh, botulinum toxin. There's a few companies we, we we actually are specific about. We teach them how to treat actually uh, using that particular product. Uh, we have uh, offerings that are um, specific in one area or two areas, that sort of thing. Um, but also, you know, face coach is about lasers and it's about uh, surface devices and it's becoming more and more that. Uh, we hope to actually, uh, uh, I can't 
to comment too much, but uh, we're, we're hoping to take it to a different level over the next 12 to... And we almost got a secret out of uh, Greg there, Jake. Almost <laughs> almost got him. Almost. I can't believe he hasn't mentioned the Fat Dissolving Masterclass in Sydney on September the 14th. <laughs> Sydney, Sydney, Sydney. That's where you don't have to go through curfews. That's where I can walk yeah. out of the house at, uh, at yeah. 24 minutes past nine and not get shot. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, pretty much. <laughs> but, but it is true. Even things like uh, fat dissolving, uh, for example, you know, we, we, we teach that. We, we teach a lot about facial shape. We teach them. We, 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 we try to teach people in a, in a structured way um, rather than necessarily. I know there are other ways of teaching by numbers and that sort of thing. I know. Um, yep. You know, but I, I have no problem with that. But we want to teach people principles. Necess- you know, I want to teach people to, how to assess beauty, to how to how to have a, a good consultative process. Mark's all over that, as you probably know. He's a, a great consultative guy. He uh, understands the process beautifully. Understands how to make people um, understand what they're going to go through, treatment plans, and and the importance of that. And in practitioners that, that are new to this field, um, treatment planning is something that's an art and that's something you have to learn how to do. You can't necessarily say, oh, you need all this today. <laughs> you need your face wiped off. You need your, your fingers taken care of. You need all this filler everywhere. You haven't come to me, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> you have to take the patient on a journey and we try to yeah. teach people to take the patient on a journey properly um, and to be there be their practitioner for life, not just for the first, uh, you know, three mils. Yeah. So it sounds like a, a multidisciplinary um, support system for people that want to learn and, uh, you know, refine their craft and deal with complications and so on. Because as Jake's alluded to, I mean, you know, there are a few companies out there. I'm sorry, Jake's just dying over there. Um, Excuse me. Sorry. <laughs> um and, um, yeah, so people are, you know, pretty much on their own out there, you know, trying to find places to, to learn and hopping on YouTube and so on. So I think it's, it's a great initiative that you guys have done in terms of setting up this sort of multidisciplinary um, support function for yeah, people. I, look, I think it's a fantastic offering. And I think the content, um, I mean, to be kind of um, um, blowing, uh, blowing the old trumpet. Blowing the trumpet. But I think the content is fantastic. You know, I think, uh, you know, and it's not, it's not the only offering out there, but I think, a structured offering like this is kind of rare, um, and uh, you know I think it will be taking it to another level in the next year or two. That's great. I think the other key thing that you maybe didn't want to mention because it's your own company is that it's um, well, all of the trainers have got at least ten years' experience, which is something in itself because often that's not achievable if you know trying to find those trainers is not always easy. Mm-hmm. But also, you teach on and off-label indications, which again is really difficult for people to learn because even from the manufacturers of our products, they're not allowed for compliance reasons to teach off-label mm. um, you know, indications. And that's a really important part of, of what we do every day, whether it's masseters or mentalis or, or, or off-label Belkyra or whatever you want to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fantastic off-label Belkyra stuff. I mean, yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very interesting product outside of some mental area. So, so uh, as, as Jake will tell people <laughs> down the track. I love it. I love it. It's great. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. But people don't. People just injecting in the submental area, just missing out on so much, aren't they? Really? Yeah. Um, but, yeah but that's uh, yes, we are able to do all that, and that is that is important because realistically, you cannot do enough studies as a company to have all the indications on 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 label. I mean, you just can't do it. You'd, uh, you'd be broke even even the huge biggest companies, and you know, there are some large companies up there, couldn't possibly do the studies required to get uh, every single area 
on label for uh, for every single injection. They're very lucky in some countries to be able to uh, have facial injections, for example, with very little evidence. So, you know, they're, they're fortunate to some degree. But, you know, every country in the world has some um, has some on-label and off-label requirements and they're different in every country. Yeah. yeah. One thing I sort of wanted to end on, and this is kind of a, a tricky one, but you're probably the person to ask. So I've seen even after lockdown, I'm getting sent a lot of, well, people are either self-referring or being referred by their practitioner. You know, can you have a look at this stuff up or, you know, puffy under eyes or whatever it may be. And it's very easy to say, yeah, sure. I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll dissolve it for you and we'll start again. But it, it opens up a can of worms, doesn't it? Because suddenly you're taking on responsibility for an issue not caused by yourself. You often don't know what was put in the face. Um, there is a, a rare but possible chance that that person is lying about what actually happened to try and get a resolution to a problem that probably shouldn't have happened in the first place. So it's actually more difficult than I think a lot of practitioners realize. So can you give injectors out there a kind of a flow chart of what to do with these people who turn up on their door and say, hey, doc, I've got these funny under eyes. They're all blue and puffy. Sort me out. What, what, what would you do? Well, um, it's interesting you ask this because we've got uh, a project that Anandiva wants to start up. It's called a passport mm. um, where actually patients will actually, uh, in practitioner, have to sign up to literally put in the passport what has been put in in certain areas on any given day, yeah. which will alleviate a lot of this, but that's obviously in the future. I think first step is you have to contact the original um, practitioner. Um, you, you can't just assume what the patient's telling you is that they'll know what, what was done to them. The original practitioner may not know what's done to them because they may be the third or fourth practitioner in a row. So you can't always rely on that. There are some telltale signs of what hyaluronic acid looks like, but, you know, I've been fooled before. So, um, you know, if it's blue underneath your eyes, it's probably going to be HA. It's probably going to be something that's dissolvable. Um, and if you – but I, I quite like assuming responsibility for patients, so I don't – I have a huge problem with that. I, I, this is this is my life. This is what I do. Um, but it is it is difficult. You own the patient from that moment on. Uh, yeah. You are the you are the next person that that is either the good doctor or the bad doctor, depending on um, on uh, your, what you've done for them. But you, you have to probably there are a few rules. One, you have to make sure that the patient is telling the truth to the best of their ability. Two, you have to make sure the patient is 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 a reasonable person. Um, and as someone you want to have as a patient long-term um, or even short-term. I always suggest they go back to their original doctor um, if they can uh, for a resolution of this unless it's something that I have to provide. In other words, there's some expertise that I have that the doctor doesn't have. Um, that's usually greeted with total, you know, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, but, but it's <laughs> worth a try. Um, but then, yes, you just practice medicine. I mean, you know, if I had a complication from a, a, a knee joint replacement and I didn't, you know, I didn't think that doctor was doing me the world of good, I'd go to another doctor to, to fix it up. So, you know, you have to have a port of call. And so it's reasonable to, to actually be that port of call. And I think people with a lot of experience in the industry probably can fix up problems a lot better than, than a person that's just done it for the last, you know, six months or something and got himself in a bit of a pickle. Yeah, absolutely. I, I must have dissolved. I don't know, at least five or six tear troughs in the last month, let's say, for it's done fun. by other practitioners. Yeah. yeah. It, it is fun. And and initially they're like, oh, fantastic. I don't have that blue thing anymore. But 
that immediately turns into, oh my God, I'm so hollow and look tired. Uh, And they're they're calling the next day to have it reversed, you know, or or redone immediately. And and then suddenly you've taken on an extra level of anxiety and worry. And the funny thing is, when someone comes in puffy, you know, it looks rubbish in my opinion, but but they might not look as tired as they do with a big tear trough again. Mm -hmm. And when you redo the tear trough, you know, you do a good job and it looks fine but to them it's not as good as it was when it was puffy yeah, yeah. and so suddenly you get into this spiral of oh i want to be puffy again That's so true um because honestly you can't fight city hall you know basically when when you're getting older your tear trough is going to give way it's just it's just a natural part of aging and you can't reverse every part of aging to make you look 25 again and when you reverse a tear trough yeah, I mean, puffiness never looks 25, but but it does actually obliterate a physical sign of ageing. And suddenly yeah. you've got all the other stuff looking dreadful and your tear troughs in their eyes looking, oh, <laughs> that's how I want to look. But yes. you can't, it looks incongruous. And obviously, you know, some of the, a lot of people walking around tear troughs that look terrible. And people don't understand the anatomy of the area, what people are meant to look like. You're not meant to be, you know, and I won't call names, but there was a guy that was, very big in fat transplantation in the nineties, huge out of the states, and used to put sixty to eighty mils of fat in people's faces. And his philosophy was: you started at the at the at the, at the <laughs> eyelash, and you just kept on going. Like it was, it was no form to the face at all. Oh, it looked like the elephant form. man. It sounds crazy. Yeah. And it, it was irreversible because at that stage you didn't have anything to resolve fat. Um, now you give it a go, sort of thing, I guess. But but it was it was totally bizarre. And and so you've got to you've got to understand that anatomy starts with convexities and concavities. The people are, are meant to be shaped; they're not meant to be a ball, not meant to be a billiard ball. And so you know, resolving tear troughs to some degree is is often too far. It's often fake. And and as Jake knows, you really start. Tear troughs by doing the mid face first, and always doing the mid face first. And if there's a disparity, if there's a problem there, and then building up structurally until you get to the eyelids. Well, that's the other problem as well. So the the original practitioner just did the tear trough, caused a problem, you fix it, and then they say, "Well, hold on, why are you doing my cheeks now? Are you trying to upsell me?" And it just becomes a a, a bigger problem after another problem, like an onion. There's different it's layers. Always to it. the initial discussion. So basically, you've got to sit them down and say, "We don't do it that way. Yeah, we do it this way." <laughs> if you want to have us do it, that's, that's, they're the rules. So basically you've got to tough it out with them a little bit because, yeah. you know, it does look odd having your tear trust looking bigger than your, your ears. You know? Yeah, <laughs> I think it's just education, you know. Like I think that, you know, I'm not in, not a practitioner but in pretty engrossed in the industry and I think it just becomes normal for us to just, you know, to sort of, you know, that, that thought process of, you know, you treat that mid-cheek area first. But I think it's just... As um, Greg was saying, it's just ed- taking the time to educate patients and making them understand. Because if you just sort of go from, you know, A to Z without taking them through B, C, and D, then they sort of start, you know, get confused and feel overwhelmed. And as you said, you know, they start feeling like you're taking them for a ride because they just don't understand the process. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So, Greg, going back to what you were sort of alluded to about maybe developing some sort of, I don't know, system of injecting. Do you also see a day where? We'll have complication centres, one in Melbourne, one in Sydney, one in Queensland, wherever. Because like you said, you know, I've spoken to Moben, I've spoken to Steph Roberts, I've spoken to a few people about um, ultrasound, and it's not something you can just pick up and learn, uh, even if you had the time to dedicate. And I think Stephen has played with it recently, he found it very difficult. Yes. So do, do you see a time where 
maybe yourself or someone else would set up a center locally and say, look, I'm going to put my hand up and I'll take all of your crap. Steph and I have talked about this. Uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're tossing it around. This, uh, you know, we had from, from virtually when, when Leonie Shelton came out a year ago, we've been kind of every so often having a, a thought process about it. But, yes, I do think you probably do need, for the difficult ones, <coughs> I think you do need a, um, a centre. And then where does the responsibility lie there? I mean, for a serious complication, for example. Um, well, the complication, look, you, you can't shy away. It's like people saying, oh, why would you be a, a doctor in the COVID ward? I mean, medicine is medicine. You can't shy away from a requirement to actually um, do, the, do the best by your patient. <clears throat> sure. Whether it's a severe complication or a not severe complication or a normal injection, your responsibility is to the patient from the practitioner who's now treating them. And yes. so I, I don't have a huge issue with accepting that I now, with this patient, have another level of responsibility. Mm-hmm. But I also have to have the buy-in from the patient. And to some extent, I have to have, as we were talking about, a bit of honesty from everybody going around sort of thing as to, as to what we're expecting to achieve. Um, I have no problem about having the discussion with patients about what I can't do. Yeah, um, and I think that that's a really important thing. You, you can't, if you um, <clears throat> always are talking back to the patient what you can do and not what you can't do, then you're not doing the patient a favour because yeah. often the patient wants something that, that they've seen some Instagram or some influencer doing or something that they think is a great idea, but it's not. And you have to be able to say to them, I can't do that. I, I don't have that aesthetic. I don't really know how to do those loops so that have some patients that might have gone across certain borders. Um, I, I don't know how you actually get lips like that. I mean, I, I know in the old days with fat, we used to shove in a huge amount into lips because we knew it was all going to go down. So, you know, that was fine. But but the lips that are around at the moment, I, I think if COVID did nothing more, <laughs> it would be terrific if it stopped us doing lips for a year. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my one worry with people, you know, people would take advantage of people like you because they would know that, ah, oh, Greg's going to take anything without questions asked. I can inject with impunity and, and it doesn't matter because someone's going to pick up the pieces. That's my only worry with it. Yeah. Uh, I, I, don't, I, I don't know if that's necessarily going to be the case, but certainly I have no problem about picking up the pieces. I mean, yeah. to me, that's, um, uh, I, I've always liked being the point of last resort sort of thing. And yeah. I, I don't think that that's that that's a real problem. I mean, I don't want to have every patient with every single weird injection uh, on my doorstep tomorrow morning. But but you know, I, I don't have a huge issue. Um, I think when you delve into an area uh, in a subspecialty fashion, you have to accept that you're going to get. And as people get more and more competent at dealing with their complications, the yeah. ones I get are going to be harder and harder because the easy ones are being taken care of by their own practitioners. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Final question, Greg. Have you, so I've been on a lot of forums just anecdotally and people were saying, and I don't know if this is true or just perception, that botulinum toxin in a large number of patients isn't working as well post-COVID. Have you heard anything to do with this or is it just anecdotal because people haven't had their treatment for many months and they're just sort of forgetting about what they used to look like after Botox? I think it's too early, isn't it? I mean, we've only had, we've only really had one round of Botox to to look at it. I I agree. I agree. But there, there there are multiple, multiple people swearing blind that initially started with, oh, I think there's a batch problem. 
And then it turned out that the people who were moaning had different batches that they were moaning about. And then it was different brands. It wasn't just one brand. So I don't know. It's interesting. Could be people wanting money as well or free retreats, maybe. Yeah. Well, no, one <laughs> I think there might be a bit of tightening up the finances. That's quite possible. But I, I actually, no, I don't, I can't see that being an issue, even if people had had COVID in Australia, hasn't been many people at all. Um, yeah, I can't see that interacting with botulinum toxin. I, I think that's a furphy. Fair enough. Your dog, sir, joined us, by the way. What's your, what's your dog's name? Rufus. Rufus is oh, a Rufus. wild animal, you can see. <laughs> Looks ferocious. <laughs> Definitely not ferocious, a little fluffy. <laughs> Yeah, no, good. He's a good dog. Good. He's, if I'm doing something, he's always going to be by my side. Uh, this is this is uh, this is what this is his job description. Well, that's a nice point, probably to end. Do you mm. want to give our listeners um, contact details for Face Coach and also uh, your own clinic, just in case people want to get in touch or be referred to you or whatever? Send patients to you. I'm not sure I want to do that now, but <laughs> 15 people lined up for tear trough dissolving on Friday. Yeah. <laughs> so FaceCoach is spacecoach.com and FaceCoach Live is spacecoachlive.com. Um, and uh, if you get on there, you'll see all the, the, uh, the courses that are available, the information that's available. Um, there are different price brackets. Some is free, some is free, some is paid for. Um, at the moment in COVID, it's disrupted our face goes live a little bit, but that'll come back uh, when we get out of this a little bit. Um, and uh, I'm Greg Goodman. I'm, I'm at Dermatology Institute of Victoria, which is in um, South Yarra in, in uh, Melbourne. Um, and if you're allowed outside five kilometres, um, come see us after the September 13. We get out of stage four um, and uh, hopefully. And uh, uh, we're in Howard Street in South Melbourne, in uh, South Yarra. So um, look us up. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time, uh, Professor Goodman. We both, Jake and I, really appreciate it. And uh, Jake said he's been battling for a while to, to tee it all up. So I'm glad we finally got there in the end. Yeah. Now we're there. Okay. <laughs> thank you, Greg. Okay. Cheers. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests.